Hey, what's going on guys? It's Michael from the Honest Youth Pastor YouTube channel, the channel that helps believers use biblical discernment in all aspects of life today. We are going to be doing that through a sermon review. And you may ask, what is a sermon review? Well, each week we go through total sermons of pastors that you have sent in via DM or email or over on Instagram. We go through the whole sermon and we ask three specific things. One, do they read the scriptures? Two, do they use uh, context and culture to exegete the scriptures? And three, do they apply application? Now, if you want a guide that we're going to help you do that, uh, not only online, but also in person, we have a downloadable sermon notes guide that you can find on our website. Link will be in the description below. And it basically walks you through that sort of thing. It tells you the church, the speaker, the main scripture they use, as well as on the other side, it gives you some other scriptures so you can follow along. It gives you some notes, an area of concern, things I've learned. And then at the very bottom down here, we have a checklist of, I've broken it up into four, but it's essentially the three things we ask. This right here, free guide to sort of try to help you uh, work through the sermons that you hear online, as well as in person in a, in a, in a condensed applicable way so that you can sort of, you know, ask the right questions, have notes taken down. So if you have questions to ask afterwards, it's there, it's concise, you've written it down so you don't forget it. That is available on uh, thehonestyouthpastor.com, link in the description below, along with a lot of other ways to support uh, this channel and what we do here down below as well. So before we get too far into this, I just want to say we're going to be looking at a sermon from James River Church today uh, from John Lindell. He's somebody you guys sent in, and this is a very interesting sermon. I think this sermon review is going to be very interesting for every different denomination, every background, because uh, there's going to be areas here that we're going to disagree. And then there's going to be areas that I, uh, that I think there's going to be like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. And that's really an interesting, uh, this is what's make this sermon pretty interesting. So let's go ahead, go over to our little review screen here, and we're going to hop right in as um, we sit down at James River Church and look at uh, the sermon that uh, John is going to preach today called The Supernatural Life of the Believers. So let's get into it. If you have your Bibles, your iPhone, I encourage you to turn with us to... Also, sorry, this is going to be at 1.5 speed or 1.25 speed. I know that's going to annoy some of you, but this sermon in and of itself is an hour long just by itself or like 45, 45 minutes. So in order to make this sermon review not just your entire day. Uh, we're going to speed that up to 1.5 and try to cut some of that time off. So if that annoys you, as always, link will be in the description below as well for this full sermon without my commentary. So if you want to watch that, that's where you're going to go to do that. Um, if you want, if you have to watch it at normal speed. Um, but anyway, just a heads up on that. Also a heads up, he's about to mention the scripture he's going to be using for today. So make sure you have your Bibles out and go to that. Acts chapter 10, as we're back in the book of Acts, a series we've entitled Power Today. And you know, we're in a season that I can only call a time of supernatural visitation. How do you quantify that? How do you qualify that? I, I think, you know, first and foremost, are people getting saved? And we're having record numbers of people come to Christ. We're seeing all these people come to Jesus. It's so exciting. We're having record numbers of people being baptized by hundreds more than last year, which was a record in and of itself. We're seeing people healed. We're seeing people filled with the Holy Spirit. We're watching God move in such a powerful way, all of which makes what we're coming to in Acts 10 extremely relevant for us. We've been praying that God would bring a great awakening to Southern Missouri. We desperately need it. The problems will never be solved 
by government agencies. I'm not against government agencies. They do what they can, but the problems are deeper than that. They're greater than that. There's not enough money. There's not enough time. There's not enough manpower to solve those problems. And some of the problems, honestly, are rooted in the supernatural. It's going to take a move of God. What does a move of God look like? And what, what do people of God experience when God is moving? A part of that is answered for us as we go through Acts chapter 10. In this chapter, we're going to see a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius, who is not born again, have an angelic visit. We're going to watch as the apostle Peter is slain in the spirit, goes into the trance and has a vision. So real quick, before we get too far into this, his intro is, uh, it seems like, and I, I'm not sure, to be honest with you, because I don't obviously watch James River Church, so I don't know. But it seems like he's preaching through the book of Acts chapter by chapter or section by section, and now he's reached uh, chapter 10. And as we look at these sermons, I always like to say, okay, how do they open? What can we learn from their opening? And it seems as if he's preaching uh, through the different books of uh, Acts, going through and addressing what happens in those books. His intro is very interesting in regards to it. It'd be your classical intro of saying, hey, here's what we're looking at. Here's how it connects to now. And that's what we're going to unpack. And he talks about how politics are a great way to kind of change culture. But also you have to realize that some of this stuff is supernatural. Some of it's spiritual and that 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 plays into it. Now, uh, one of the things that you're going to notice before we get very far into this sermon is that uh, James River Church seems to be a part of the charismatic Pentecostal movement. He'll mention that a few times. Uh, not that this has a whole lot to do with it, but he does have, if you look through some of the people that have preached at his church, uh, Brian Houston, I think, actually preaches at his church uh, or has guests spoken at his church. You have Louis Giglio has guests spoken at his church. Not that Louis is necessarily charismatic, but that kind of gives you an idea of the people that he has there. Again, this isn't about John uh, being the best or the worst preacher. I'm just saying that this, just so you kind of know the background of where he's coming from, he's coming from that sort of uh, Pentecostal charismatic background. So that's how he's approaching scripture. That's the lenses of which he's using. Um, so that's going to inform a lot of what he says here. Now, that being said, he seems like he's got a weird mix of, uh, I say weird mix because Pentecostals typically don't do expositional preaching as far as uh, expositional preaching, as far as how they work through the Bible. This seems to be how at least John's doing it here. And so he's in chapter 10, he's introing us and he's about to give us some context um, to Acts chapter 10, so you kind of know where we're at. So it's a classical opening. Hey, here's what we're looking at. Here's why. Um, and then he kind of gets into it. We're going to watch as the Holy Spirit tells Peter about people who are coming up to the house where he's staying. And then we're going to watch as Peter preaches and a room full of non-Jewish people are instantly filled with the Holy Spirit. Not only all of that, but this chapter is the beginning of a turning point in the book of Acts as the gospel now goes not only to the Jewish people, but now to Gentiles, to non-Jewish people. It's the beginning of the great missionary movement. It's the reason why you and I are in church today because of what we read in Acts chapter 10. So let's pick it up in Acts 10 and verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. We don't know where he was from. We don't know that he was Italian. You say he was in the Italian regiment. People were in that regiment from other parts of the world. He's a centurion. The regiment he commands has somewhere around 80 to 100 people. One of the things that you're going to notice here as we preach through, as he preaches through this sermon, um, I don't, this is the first message I've ever heard from John. I don't even know who John was before I, before I watched this sermon. John seems to be very, um, 
and this is where what was the Jerry Maguire line you had me at hello uh John is very much contextual it seems like at least at least within this sermon to his preaching he talks about background he talks about church history he talks about uh, there's so much context to what he's talking about here and he, he even not only does he intro with it but he interjects it here and that does matter because that means that there's a lot here that John has looked at. There's a lot that John is bringing to the text that allows us to see it more clearly. So even though you may have, uh, and I may have, a difference of opinion uh, in regards theologically with him in, re in a couple of different areas, one of the things that is sticking out from the get-go here is that John is bringing in a lot of context and culture that's incredibly important and often lacking in sermons to help his people understand exactly what's going on here. So I just want to point that out from the beginning. I, the reason I point that out is I want you to listen for that throughout this sermon because it's just sprinkled everywhere and it's incredibly helpful, not only as far as context to the text we're reading, but the history of uh, different things that John talks about throughout this sermon. So let's keep going. And he is stationed in Caesarea. While he's in Caesarea, which is a part of the land of Israel, he hears about the Jewish God. He hears about what he is like. And there's something in Cornelius's heart that God gets a hold of, and Cornelius begins to pray to the Jewish God. Look at it in verse 2. And he and all his family were devout and God-fearing. We're talking about God-fearing. We're not talking about born again. We're talking about, in the Jewish way of thinking, there were three categories of people, spiritually speaking. There were Gentiles, non-Jewish people, who had their own religion. There were God-fearers, people who had been Gent who were Gentiles, but who were influenced by Judaism, who began to pray to the God of the Jews, began to learn about the God of the Jews. They were God-fearers. That's Cornelius and his family. Then there would be a third category, proselytes, who were complete converts to Judaism, and that required uh, instruction, it required baptism, it required circumcision, it required a lot of different things that would happen to be a proselyte. He is a God-fearer. In verse 2, it says, he gave generously to those in need, and he prayed to God regularly. When people pray to God regularly, even when they don't know God, things are going to happen. Because God's going to show them who he is, and God's going to reveal himself to them, and that's exactly what happens to Cornelius. In verse 3, one day, about 3 in the afternoon. Why is this important? Because the Jewish hours of prayer were 9 in the morning, 3 in the afternoon, so he is observing those hours of prayer, and at 3 in the afternoon, he had a vision. You say, what is a vision? What is a vision like? Well, unlike a dream, which happens when a person is asleep, a vision happens while we are awake. In that moment, a person who's having a vision has what you could call an audio-visual communication from the Lord. It could involve angels, as it does in Cornelius' case. So this is where there's now going to be like a divergence. You're going to see this throughout um, this sermon, and it's one of those things— especially if you come from a different uh, faith background than John is, which is Pentecostal charismatic, then you're going to approach and hear what he says a little differently. Now, this is one of the things that I think really helps us as we listen to different sermons. This is why I would encourage you to listen to different sermons, not necessarily as your main like form of um, Bible teaching, right? You have a, you should have a local church in which you attend, in which you have a shepherd pastor over you that is, um, you know, the one that's been assigned over you as far as 
uh, how, how the body operates and all of that. So you have a local church, you attend there, you have a pastor, shepherd, you have some elders over you, as the Bible says. And that's where you get your main discipleship, mentorship. That's where you're growing spiritually. That's where you're attending. That's where you're giving of your gifts and talents, right? That's that. But I think we live in an age such where we can, such as now, like we can watch a variety of different sermons from a variety of different people. And that's a good thing to do so that we can see um, the different forms of preaching. We can really see um, different theologies kind of worked out within that preaching. And I think this is where, you know, listening to somebody like John here is helpful because what we're seeing is, um, for me, I guess, for example, I don't come from a Pentecostal charismatic background. So I come from a Methodist Wesleyan background, and now I have some reformed leanings because of some people that I've listened to. So what John is saying here is not something that I am used to hearing necessarily every Sunday. And it's something that you need to take in and then process through the scriptures. So how do we do this then? So as John's going to go through this and talk about visions, right? He's working through the scripture here, verse by verse, and he's he's trying to pull out um, different things within these scriptures, these each of these verses, and expound on them in ways um, and and teach. Really, is what he's doing. He's trying to teach his people. All right, well, what does this mean then to have a vision? What does this mean then to be a God fear? And all this is very helpful. So this is where I would encourage you and anybody preaching. Not to shut your brain down, but rather to say, what good notes can I take here, right? Um, not that you're going to agree or disagree. There's things in this sermon that I disagree with, and we'll talk about those at the near the end of it. But one of the things we need to listen for is like, all right, so what here sounds odd to me, and what can I do? And this is why, for example, this uh, the sermon note thing is really helpful because you're able to take it down and say, okay, what do I need to look up later? So that's what I would encourage you to do as as you listen to this sermon or any other sermon to say, okay, there's going to be things that are like odd to me here. This is a little different. What can I do, though, to take notes, to actually look it up later, to then, whether I agree or disagree, be able to speak to it better or be able to defend against it because I don't I don't think he's approaching it in a right way. So that's where really listening to what they're saying and not shutting our brains down and being defensive, but listening, taking good notes and then being able to address it later is super important. So that being said, he's going to go into a, a thing here on visions that's going to last a minute, but I just want to sort of intro with that so that you're able to take good notes and really think about this as he works through it. It could involve the Lord Jesus himself. It could involve you being transported in the vision to a place other than where you were at. You could go to heaven, you could go to hell, you could see a scene that you've never seen before that you are going to see or that somebody you love is experiencing. I mean, it can be any number of things, but it involves God speaking to you in a way when a person sees it, they know this is supernatural. In Cornelius's case, it's a vision of an angel. And so in verse three, we read, he distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him. So in this vision, he sees an angel coming close to him. And as he comes close to him, the angel calls his name and says, Cornelius, here's a Roman centurion. To be a centurion, you had to be the bravest of the brave. This is a guy who's seen a lot of battle action. This is a guy who knows what it is to be in the heat of battle, to be in the, the thick of a fight, to stand your ground, no matter what the enemy is doing. This is a brave man. But when he sees the angel, he stared at him in terror. Now, let me just pause here for a moment and say something that I think is really important for us to consider. And that is, in the book of Acts, angels are appearing to people 
regularly. Now, this is part of the um, the sort of going into this vision thing a little deeper. He goes into, he talks about visions, but now he's going to kind of sub-dive into angels. This is where I would take a lot of notes if I was just sitting here and listening to, to John. Um, what he's about to go into, not to like, you know, give it away or anything like that. Um, well, actually, I, I don't want to give it away. So I want, to, I want to get into it. He's going to do a very long thing about angels. I'm going to let him go through the whole thing. And then afterwards, I do want to sort of unpack everything that he says here, because I think it's important and helpful. Um, and I, well, I, I, don't, I don't want to give too much weight. So let's go ahead and get into it. I do want to let you know, though, this is going to be a really long section where he's talking about it, but he gives a lot of references. So if you are going to be taking notes, um, this would be the place to do it specifically. Um, but he, he goes into a pretty long breakdown of angels within Acts, uh, the book of Acts. In fact, if we're going to take the book of Acts and we're going to say that it gives us a picture of what normative life should be for spirit-filled believers, then you have to conclude that spirit-filled believers are going to have encounters and interactions with angels. I'm not saying that it's something we pray to have happen. Certainly we don't worship angels, but angels are a part of our service to God. In fact, in the book of Acts, 23 times angels are mentioned. In Luke's gospel, which is volume one of a two-part set, Acts is volume two, Luke wrote them both. In Luke's gospel, angels are mentioned 25 times, so between the two you have angels mentioned 48 times. Christianity is a very angelic experience. You will encounter angels in your life if you're a believer, count on it. Do you have a guardian angel? I believe the Bible teaches that, that people have them. For some, you have two or three. The first one had a nervous breakdown. <laughs> but angels are a part of our life. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2, the writer of Hebrews says, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. For some have done this and have entertained angels without realizing it. You may interact with somebody who talks with you, who encourages you, who looks very human, but was in fact an angel you may leave that encounter and then wonder or know in your heart, I believe that was an angel, or it may be heaven before you realize when you meet the angel there. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14, are not angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? In other words, angels regularly interact with us. There are angels here today. There are angels in this room. There are angels on this property. It's not that, again, we seek to see them, but it's that we're aware that they're there and they have a function and a purpose in our life. It may interest you to know that in the book of Acts, there are seven angelic appearances. Seven's the perfect number. In other words, what you're seeing is God's people will have interaction with angels as they do God's work. You say, I want to see an angel. I love that. Then get busy doing God's work. One of the best ways is to start sharing Christ with people you know. Because angels are very interested in facilitating that. Let me give you seven, the seven instances. Number one, angels comfort us by reminding us of God's word. In Acts 1 verse 10, the disciples are watching Jesus as he ascends into heaven, as they're looking intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Those are angels. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking? Okay, so real quick, I, I did say I was going to let him go through the whole thing. I'm not. Uh, I want to stop here because this is a good breaking point because he's about to go into the instances that he's talking about. So a couple things here that I think are, are interesting. 
whenever we're hearing somebody go off sort of on a, on a tangent, which I would, I would say this is what this is because we're not necessarily, uh, when we're looking at the text that he's actually talking about in regards to Acts chapter 10 and Cornelius, um, he seems to really like zoom in specifically on verse, uh, three. Uh, and it says about the ninth hour of the day he saw, he saw a, uh, let me see here about the ninth hour of the day, he saw a vision and an angel of God came to him and said, Cornelius. And John seems to be really zooming in on that verse specifically, and then coming off until into this really deep section on angels. Now he is going to give us, uh, all seven of the instances that he's talking about, but there's a few statements he made that I think are very interesting. One of them being, uh, angels and the believer and, uh, in regards to like acts giving us like the normative view of what a Christian life should be. That's an, to me, an odd take in regards to like, Oh, this is if, when you read acts, acts is exactly what, uh, the Christian life should look like then, which I would disagree with in regards to, I think within acts, we see the apostles still alive, supernatural power that's been given to them to bring forth uh, and declare the gospel in ways that uh, not necessarily uh, is, is the same as, you know, what we see now. Uh, he says that uh, you can count on encountering angels if you're a believer. I think that's a bit odd because that does set up a precedent of, of like, oh, if I've never seen an angel, then what does that mean about my Christian life? That seems to be unintentionally setting up like this extra thing to as a check off. If I'm a believer, I'll definitely encounter angels. Now, to, to balance that out, he does say that it's not like you seek them out or you have to have like he, he tries to balance this out to where he makes it to where he's like, hey, I'm not worshiping angels. I'm not saying that, you know, they're the main point of the thing. I'm just saying and why uh, I'm just saying I'm saying that what he's saying is that like, oh, you'll definitely encounter them, though, because a Christian life is a supernatural life and a supernatural life. You will have angels in it uh, as well. Now, he mentions all of the uh, mentions of angels in in Luke and Acts. Uh, 25, he says in Luke. 23, he says in Acts. And he seems to make a causation equals correlation here that, oh, we saw them, we see them here, and therefore they'll be normative in our lives. That ignores uh, Matthew, Mark, and John uh, and, and makes Luke like, oh, well, Luke said it. And because we're looking at Luke and Acts and these combination of all these angels, uh, this mention of angels, and it's this normative thing. Um, I think that's a little bit of an overreach. Now, again, I want to be fair because he's definitely done. Uh, he's done the research. We're going to get into it here in a minute. Uh, he's he's pointing out, you know, the points that um, he sees in Acts. And I think this is well-researched. And I, I, I'm cautious here because I think he does a really good job of demonstrating um, interactions with angels within the New Testament. I think he, he approaches it fairly balanced in where he is saying, hey, this isn't a have-to thing, but if you're a Christian, you're going to sort of like he's sort of trying to balance this out and not make angels more important within the scriptures than scripture makes them itself, but at the same time saying, hey, like this is a big deal. Now, I think we're going to see why. I don't want to skip ahead too much. He's actually going to talk about a personal story in which he says he has had an encounter with an angel. And I think that this sort of influences that, like that encounter that he's going to talk about, which seems to be a fairly recent encounter, like a, a, within the last few years of his life. I think that influences a little bit of 
why he's putting so much time and energy into the subject of angels in this sermon, even though in the text, it's not like this big thing. Um, I think he's teaching on it because of the encounter he had one and two, because it's like, it's not something that the church talks about now. And to his credit, we do see it a lot in scripture, but where do you find that balance of saying like, oh, it's this normative thing for the believer then. So all of that being said, I think there are some, there's some problems with deep diving so close to it, but at the same time, talking out both sides of my mouth here, I think it is important to teach on this so that people aren't confused about uh, angels and angelic beings and stuff like that. So it's sort of a, again, this is where and why I said take a lot of notes, because when we're looking at the context of the passage we're talking about, that's important. So I think what he's trying to do is teach well on angels, but maybe letting some like, um, some personal experiences really motivate that a little bit, but that could just be my bias in listening to this here, um, which is, I mean, totally accept that that could be the thing that's going on. So let's go ahead and get back into it. He's going to give us seven scriptures in which angels are mentioned and that he sees like a really important part of that happening here in Acts into the sky the same jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go they're comforting them they're encouraging them jesus said he'd come back they're saying that's right he's coming back second thing that angels do they give protection in acts 5 and verse 18 they arrested the apostles put them in the public jail but during the night an angel of the lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out go stand in the temple courts he said and tell the people the full message of this new life Number three, angels can also give us direction from God. In Acts chapter 8, verse 26, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. In other words, he's telling Philip, listen, God wants you to be there because God wants to do something for you when you're there. Angels can give us directions from God. Number four, angels can make you invisible, blind the eyes of other people, and can make object, objects move. Just They're, they're kind of like the original Jedi. They're the real Jedi. I mean, watch this. Acts chapter 12. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. Peter is in prison. They're going to behead him. They've already cut the head off. James, the brother of John. Now, here's Peter. He, the angel comes up to him. Peter is sound asleep. What does that say about the peace of God that comes to the believer who trusts the Lord? He's supposed to have his head cut off the next day. The angel comes in to wake him up. Peter is one of these sound sleepers. I mean, he's just out. Debbie's concern is that I will never wake up if somebody's coming in the house. You know, I have a funny story. I don't have time for it, though. Um, <laughs> just happened. It was hilarious. So anyway, the angel comes, and he kicks Peter. Says, wake up. Quick, get up. And the chains fell off his wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. Why is he having him to tell him this? Peter thinks he's dreaming. And the angel says, hey, get dressed. Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. In other words, one thing that tells us is a vision can almost be like real life, like it's actually happening. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city, and it opened for them by itself. So they're walking by the first set of guards, the second set of guards. It doesn't say they're asleep. They just didn't see them. They're invisible. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Number five, angels can bring God's judgment on 
So one thing I do want to mention as we work through this, so he's on number five, is that uh, he is doing something that I often say like people need to do, right? So if you're going to bring angels up and really kind of deep dive and teach a little, I mean, it's, the whole sermon is not on angels, but if you're going to spend a good portion of time on that and say, hey, they're mentioned seven times in scripture, you should look it up. What he does do, which again is admirable, like he mentions the scripture he takes you to them. He reads through them. And that often isn't done. And this is a, a common critique that I give. If you've watched these sermon reviews any amount of time, you, you know this, that often I say, hey, if you're going to mention scripture or if you're going to mention a topic, you need to at least mention this scripture reference so people can write them down and reference them. And then he's actually going above and beyond that, taking you to them and actually reading through them, which is incredibly helpful. And I have to give him credit on that because this doesn't often happen, which again, this does make the sermon longer. Like I said, this is a 45-minute long sermon, not sped up. So this is why people often don't do it, but I think this is why you should and take the extra time in doing it. Because if you are going to deep dive here and you know people may have an issue with it, at least you've taken them to the scripture, you've demonstrated it, where you know what it's saying, and you've read through it and given them that information. So even if they have a hard time like going down that path with you, they at least have to reckon with the scripture and not with you. So that being said, let's keep going. People. In Acts chapter 12 and verse 21, on the appointed day, Herod Agrippa is who this is. Herod Agrippa I, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man, because they were trying to get his favor. And immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms, and he died. Number six, angels can encourage us in difficult times. Paul is being taken to Rome to appear before Caesar. They're out on a, a ship in the Mediterranean. They get caught up in a nor'easter. It's tornadic winds, hurricane force winds, and the, the owner of the ship, the captain of the ship, and the crew are all sure the ship is gonna sink. Paul, after 14 days at sea, not being able to see the sun or the stars at night, says this, last night an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Paul, y'all are gonna make it. And Paul gets up and boldly says, this is what an angel just told me. They can encourage us in difficult times. The seventh appearance is the one that we come to in Acts chapter 10. Angels can direct people to where they can find out about Jesus. Angels don't tell people about Jesus. That doesn't happen until the end times in the book of Revelation. But angels will move God's people to where they can be at the right place at the right time, and they can direct people on how to hear the gospel so that they might be saved. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 3, one day about the 3 in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror. What is it, Lord, he asked. And he's not using, that's not like, what is it, God? It is a term of respect. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Do you realize when you and I pray, here he is, he's not even born again. But he's praying and his prayers are being heard and it's like a memorial offering. The Bible says our, our prayers are like incense to God. And he stores our prayers and he keeps them around his throne. Here's the angel talking to him and he says, send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon. You can tell Simon's a common name in that day. The tanner whose house is by the sea. All that to say, 
angels are active in the lives of believers. So here's the interesting thing on a, on a number of different notes. So the first thing being this is that he walks people through knowing that there are going to be those that disagree probably with his, his particular lens in which he's coming from, Pentecostal charismatic. Um, then he gives all the demonstrations of scripture, walks you through them and make sure that, um, you, he's not over spiritualizing it. He's just saying like, here's the evidence of this happening within Acts. So while I would disagree that this is normative for the Christian life based, based simply on Luke and Acts, what he does present is, Hey, you can't deny that angels are active within the lives of the believer within the early church. And then you have to kind of contend with, hey, is that still happening now? What does that mean? Did that end? I mean, so there he does present, and this is this is a really great thing as a pastor, if you're a pastor to do, is to present your evidence, leave it on the table, and then let the congregation wrestle with that, given the content and context and scriptural references you've given them. Because you've done your part as a pastor. You're like, hey, this is what scripture says. Here are the references for it. Here it is. Go kind of work through that, um, you know, with that information. And kind of just leaves it there, making sure he doesn't over-spiritualize it, but he says, hey, this is a reality. Also, from a sermon-building perspective, he's wrapped us, he, he's given us this information. So we took sort of this side road, but now he's bringing us back to the main text. So he walks us through all of these different spots in scripture where angels are mentioned. His last one that he mentions is Acts chapter 10, which, not a coincidence, brings us back to his main text. So now we've taken a sort of a detour, but it's not a distractive detour. It actually wraps us right back around to where he where we left in Acts chapter 10 and allows him to pick right back up in the text that we left at the same spot we left in. Which is, again, I don't know how long John's been preaching. But this is like master level sermon building move to where uh, he was able to cover a, a nice little chunk of scripture and teaching on angels and not really take us all the way out into left field. And then now we have to kind of work our way back. Also showed restraint in regards to there was a story he, you could tell he really wanted to tell restrained himself to not do that. So he stuck with his notes and the scripture for the day. So as to make this about scripture and not a funny story about him. So kudos to that. And now we're back where we were in Acts chapter 10, uh, verse three. And he can just continue down the same road that we were going as we work through the text. Great sermon building move. Great way to keep middle ground through the entire thing. So even if there are people that disagree with him, it's now in their court to kind of work through the scripture that he's talking about. Um, so all together, like, I like, I'm just impressed from a pastoral stance on the sermon building that he's done so far, as well as the, the very middle ground he's been able to hold because oftentimes, at least my experience, maybe yours too, when you get into some charismatic Pentecostal sermons, everything is over-spiritualized. And John is doing a really good job, I think, of saying, hey, this is what the text says. Let's deal with the text, what the text says within context. And he even gave like this little free preaching point there at the end where he said, no, when it's referencing Lord here, it's not referring to uh, to God as much as it is Lord as a title of, of um, you know, um, respect. And he just sort of threw that in there. But I think, again, you can tell that John is very concerned 
about his people understanding context and how that then helps them understand the scriptures, which I have to appreciate. Like, I just like kudos to him on that. So let's keep going as now we're back in the text and we're going to keep working through it. We don't worship angels. We don't seek angelic encounters. But the closer you and I walk to God, and the more you and I are about his business, the more his priorities are our priorities, the more you are likely to have angelic encounters in your life. Because angels are literally everywhere. They're in this place. They're with you. Debbie and I, in, at our home, we, we pray whenever we buy a home. We say, Lord, we pray over the house. And we pray that God would set his angels on the property around the home. I believe God answers that prayer, that angels do watch over the people who love God. An angelic interaction with believers is normal. In fact, I love what David Martin Lloyd-Jones says, great preacher from the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and 70s in London. He writes this, because we are Christians, the angels of God are at our service. They are ministering spirits sent forth by God to serve and minister to you and me. Though we are unconscious of this, they are exercising this ministry. We are surrounded by them. They are unseen, but they are there, and they minister to us because we belong to Christ. We sadly neglect and forget the service of angels, but if ever you feel lonely and bereft and feel you do not know what to do nor where to turn, remind yourself that your heavenly Father, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, has sent angels to minister to you as he did to him in the hours of his greatest crises and his greatest agony, just like they ministered to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You can be sure in those times when you are under stress and duress, angels are coming. You may not see them, but they're there. Okay, so this is where, and I do want to note this um, before I forget, because I will. This is sort of where we diverge off a little bit, right? So he did, as I said, bring us back around to the text. We don't go through a whole lot more of the text, though. Now, to his credit, he says that like next, the next sermon he preaches, he'll get into that text a little bit more. So he just gives them this section. Um, we'll talk about that more at the end, so I don't want to really run it, but this, we don't get a whole lot more into the text. He uses this opportunity to sort of to go off on, uh, a specific teaching point, which we'll see in a minute. The one thing I do want to note, and the reason I paused is because I've said before, and I think it's also very important here is that the people that pastors quote in their sermon tells us quite a bit about sort of who's influencing like what dead theologian is influencing their thinking or their prep or things like that. Now, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, if he has a lot of the, well, he doesn't, people have put his sermons online from way, way back. Um, the quality is not great, but you can still listen to them. And there's, I mean, they're audible. You can hear what he's saying. Um, one of probably like after Charles Spurgeon, as far as timeline goes, Martin Lloyd-Jones is known as one of the greatest preachers of his time uh, or the greatest preacher of his time, um, does not fall within the charis charismatic Pentecostal movement at all. That's why I bring it up is that John referencing uh, Lloyd-Jones Lloyd Lloyd -Jones here is important because what it's demonstrating is he has a lot of influences outside of maybe his his immediate circle, which is important. Uh, he's going to notice, he's going to mention a few other people. Wesley's going to be somebody else he mentions here in a minute. And I think that at least this, this first encounter I have here with John, I can't say a whole lot. Obviously this is the only sermon I've listened to is that you he seems to be well-rounded. Now, again, these sermon reviews are not about the pastors necessarily that we're looking at. They are the example of, you know, this type of sermon. 
So when you're looking at pastors, again, one of the things you're looking at is, are they well-rounded? Are they, are, are they, have they taught themselves? Have they made the effort to be educated in all the different varying backgrounds of theology so they can speak to those different backgrounds of theology? And it seems to me that John here has done that. Um, not just because of the Lord Jones quote, like a, the whole sermon, I think speaks to that, but the quote here brings that out a little bit more where he's saying, Hey, look, you know, this is what Jones says in his commentary. And he sort of uses this not only to maybe, I, maybe this is why he's doing it. Maybe he's not, uh, to bring sort of some validity to those that may be like, Hey, I'm not quite down with your angels thing. And bringing Lloyd Jones in a quote from Lloyd Jones is sort of like a way to say, Hey, even if you're not down with the same lens that I am using as far as Pentecostalism, Lloyd Jones isn't a Pentecostal and even he's saying this in his commentary, right? So it brings validity a little bit to what John is saying. Also while demonstrating, um, like he, he, he's, he's influenced by people outside necessarily of his stream of, of theological thought. So let's keep going. I don't know all that they do. I just know scripture tells us that they're there. So I read that and think about this. I think about an encounter that I had. I've told it on Wednesday night. I've, there's more to it than, than this. But um, a year ago, last April, I had a second surgery within. Here's the story that I was referencing, just so you're clear on what I was talking about. I think this influences this story. Personal things that happen to us undoubtedly influence how we preach, how we see things. And this seems to be a little bit of what's happened to John. This story seems very personal to him and very impactful to him. So let's let him tell the whole thing. Seven months for cancer. And we were out in, in California where we had the surgery. And, and uh, so I had the surgery and, and uh, the next day we were at our VRBO and I, I went down on the patio. Debbie was sitting out there. I walked out and all of a sudden I said, oh, well, I don't feel good. And I'm kind of kneeling by the sofa. She said, I'm calling the ambulance. And I said, no, 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 don't do that. And so the next thing I knew that I remembered was I was in the ambulance. So um, <laughs> she didn't listen to me. But uh, anyway, they rushed me to the hospital and I've got a 105 fever and got a septic infection and, and uh, almost, almost literally died. I think your prayers really saved me, honestly. Because um, I can remember in the middle of the night, three doctors in the middle of the night, there was a heart uh, doctor, there was a urologist, there was an infectious disease doc. I asked one of them later, what the, were you in the room at night? Because I was on morphine. And they said, yeah. I said, what were you doing? They said, well, we thought you were going to die. So thank you for praying. But um, anyway, anyway I, was in a, I was in a lot of pain, and I'd asked them to let me go home. They said, if, if, if we let you go, you're not going to be able to be on morphine, because that had really helped me. The pain was pretty severe. And I said, well, I'd rather, I'd rather be home. So we go back to the VRBO on Sunday afternoon. And and that afternoon and evening, I'm, I'm really feeling terrible. And, and so it was 12.30 on Sunday night. And I mean, I am, I am hurting. Now, let me just say this. I'm a baby when it comes to pain. So hurting to me might be a small headache to you. I don't know. But uh, anyway, I'm feeling terrible. And as well, during this whole deal with the second round of cancer from the day I was diagnosed to the time I had the surgery, I, I underwent a despair like I've never known in my whole life. So it was, it was horrific. And so my heart goes out to people who have had that. And so, you know, we get through Easter, men's conference, all that, but I'm just, I'm, I'm barely, my nose is barely above water. So I'm thinking I get the surgery, I'll be better about that. But uh, that night, the despair was massive and my body was, I was in a lot of pain. And so I don't know why I prayed it. You wonder sometimes why you do certain things. But I, in that moment, as I was laying there, um, I just said, Lord, either send an angel to touch me. And I think I was thinking of Elijah in the desert 
or I said, take me home. And in that moment, instantly, an angel walked into the room. I don't talk about it much because it's very, very personal to me. But he touched me. When he did, fire went, it was like fire went around from the bottom of my feet to the top of my head. It was just like a vortex of fire that went up, went down, went back up, went down. And instantly, the despair was gone, and instantly the pain was gone. It was a, a very interesting thing. And then he was gone. Um, and out of that, what happened was uh, the Lord did a, did a work in me. It changed me. I, I, I came back different. I, um, uh, it, it changed how I was doing things. And I think really, I, would, I wouldn't say that what happened caused anything that is happening to happen. But what happened changed me so I could lead appropriately in the midst of what's happening, if you're with me on that. So here's the thing with personal stories like that. You have to do something with them, right? So you either have to say that he, uh, there's only three, like, so he's either lying or this really happened and you have to do something with that, or he was in so much pain, he was hallucinating. Those are basically the three things that you can come to the conclusion of. And you have to work through those, right? I don't know. I'm, I'll be honest with you. And this may like, some people that fall into some certain circles will be like, ah, I don't know about that. I am, I am going to go with, I believe him. Like, again, there's going to be some people here that are like, ah, but that we don't have reference to that in scripture. We don't have uh, any sort of way to connect that to verses. And I would agree, right? There's certain, I mean, but at the same time, there are, there are things that happen that God does in miraculous ways to encourage his people and to encourage the people that they happen to. There's things that have happened to people that I know that I cannot explain and they cannot explain, but they say that actually happened and they don't go outside of scriptural sort of bounds in regards to uh, what, what God has done in the past. And it actually has worked to encourage fellow believers to follow Jesus even more. Um, so you have to do something with that. I'm just saying that when I hear that story, I'm going to say, look, I'm going to believe him. It seems to have radically sort of changed him. Uh, is it a normative thing? This is where I'd say, like, he said a number of times that uh, angels are normative. Uh, or if you're a Christian, it'll be a normative thing for you to have angel angelic interactions. I'm going to disagree on that part. I don't think we see that through scripture. Uh, I think... Um, you have to be very careful to say, hey, we have X amount of references and therefore it's a normative thing. I think you have to be very careful with that. So I would definitely disagree with him that. But you have to do something with these supernatural stories that people have. And if they fit within like the the purview and sort of um, things that we've seen happen in scripture or um, things like that, um, we have to do something with him. Now, again, if he's over here and he's saying, hey, we should worship angels now, which he's clearly already said you shouldn't do, then there would be a big issue, a, a bigger issue. Um, but he seems to be telling this story in the way that he's telling it to not only show, to kind of back up what he said so far, but also to encourage other believers um, that may be going through some some hard times. So do with it what you will. You may think that I'm an idiot for saying I believe kind of what he's saying here, but you have to do something with it. Either he's lying, he was uh, he was hallucinating the whole thing, or it actually happened. Those are the only three things that you can actually come to. So anyway, if you think I'm dumb, that's fine. Let me know in the comment section. Um, I, I'd be interested in your take. You know, have you heard stories of weird supernatural things that don't necessarily fall out fall out of the you know 
the guidelines of scripture, but are odd, right? I think we've all maybe had those experiences where we, we know somebody that's gone through something like that. And again, you have to do something with that. You can't just be like, well, you're nuts. But anyway, so let's keep going. We're about halfway through this sermon. So even at 1.25 speed, this is going to be a really long sermon review. Um, but anyway, just kind of know where we're at. We're halfway through. Uh, we're trucking through, and uh, he is uh, now going to kind of uh, go back uh, using his this this experience that happened to him as an example. He's not going to pivot back into teaching through um, what he's going through. So angels minister to us. They're they're there. You never know when you're going to see one. Uh, but God sends them to minister to those who will inherit salvation. Back to Acts chapter 10, verse 7. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. And this is very interesting because this is the first of two times that somebody in the book of Acts falls into a trance. This word will appear again in chapter 11 when Peter recounts what happened to him. You say, what is a trance? What are, we, what are we talking about there? I want to suggest to you that what we're talking about here is what many would call in Pentecostal charismatic circles, although the phrase did not originate with Pentecostals or charismatics. It's John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, who originated the phrase, but the phrase is being slain in the spirit. You say, well, what's that? Well, being slain in the spirit is when a person, uh, Jonathan Edwards put it this way, they lose strength. They fall down. Not because they were pushed, but because they lost strength. In the presence of God, they become, in that moment, unconsciously conscious. So you're conscious, but you're also in a different world. In a way that allows God to speak to them. In a way that allows God to minister to them in a way that allows God to change them fundamentally. At times that can happen. People can undergo dynamic personal change where they come out of it a different person in many respects. You would see that somewhat in 1 Samuel chapter 10 where the Spirit of God comes on Saul and Samuel said, and when that happens, you be changed into a different person. So it can happen as a person is slain in the Spirit. In fact, in Acts chapter 10 and verse 10, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance the word there is ecstasis. We get our word ecstasy. He had an ec ecstatic experience. He had an ecstasy. And what I want to do is I, I want to take a moment with this because often in a move of God, and I'm not talking just about Pentecostal charismatic moves of God, but I'm talking about when God comes in an awakening in England in the 17th. All right, so what he's about to go into, and this is where you can really tell, at least from this sermon, at least, I don't know if this speaks for all of what John does, but um, he seems to be very intent on teaching his people and not just giving them sort of uh, overviews of things, which I 100% appreciate. Like, he's really digging into this. Uh, every time he's come across something 
that he felt need expand needed expanding on. He then goes down sort of this side, uh, this sort of side road, explains it to them and brings us back to the text, right? He did that with the angelic thing. That was the biggest one. This is the second thing that he's going to do that on when he's talking about uh, this vision or ecstasy or trance. Uh, he's going to do the same thing. And we're going to, he's going to actually go a, a, a huge part of the rest of this sermon is going through and talking about the great awakening, talking about times that um, this has happened to people before and in pulling from uh, scripture and church history, even very recent church history, again, with the second, first and second great awakenings um, and pulling from those as ways to teach people scripture as well as teach people church history at the same time, which is a unique way of doing that. This typically isn't done. This is, again, why this sermon is so long. But you don't see, I mean, not to rag on newer, younger pastors, you just don't see this type of teaching from a lot of new, like, younger pastors uh, with up-and-coming churches. A lot of it is this, like, very energetic, very, like, in-your-face, very loud. And John here is, I mean, this is a great example from, like, people ask all the time, hey, where's some great, you know, examples of people teaching through scriptures that aren't reformed because people <laughs> for some reason are like just down on reformed pastors and preachers. So here you go. Here's, here's one. Apparently John seems to be somebody that's very intent on preaching and teaching through scripture. Uh, and he's, he's not reformed. So there you go. Here's, here's an example of that. So I'm going to let him go for a while because again, this sermon review is going to be pretty long even with this sped up. Um, so I'm going to let him go for quite a bit here before I interrupt again as he sort of teaches through this. In hundreds, there was an awakening. People were slain in the spirit. The great awakening, Jonathan Edwards, people were slain in the spirit. In the second awakening, in the early 1800s, people were slain in the spirit. What I'm suggesting to you is this is a common thing that happens in a move of God. So it's not just, let's not just think of Azusa, let's not just think of charismatic renewal or latter rain, which was in the 40s and 50s, the charismatic renewal in the 60s and 70s, or Brownsville or Toronto in the 90s. We're talking about when God moves in a dramatic way, this is a phenomenon that often happens, and it is a phenomenon that you see in the Bible. So the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but as Greek became the language of the world, really around the time of Christ, there was produced a Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint. So they would look at the Hebrew word and they'd have to find a Greek word for it. So the Hebrew word for what we're looking at here is a word called tardima, and it refers to a visionary sleep. For example, and you'll see it in multiple places in the Old Testament. One example would be Genesis chapter 15. Here's Abraham, and let me just set the stage for you. So God says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. You believed me. Yeah, I'm declaring you righteous, and I'm going to bless you. And Abraham says, well, that's great, but I have no descendants, so what good is it? It's all just going to go to my servant. And God says, uh-uh-uh-uh-uh. You are going to have a child, and so is your wife. You're going to have one through your wife. So then, as the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep, a tardima. It was translated using the word ecstasy. He fell into an ecstasy. What happens is, Abraham, he is slain in the spirit. A person who's slain in the spirit, historical records, oftentimes, you know, maybe you've been in a meeting and you've seen that, or maybe you've never seen it, but sometimes people go down and they're down for a short time. But historically, people have been down at times for days. Records of people being down for eight days. So, it, I mean, God's the one who does the work. Who knows how long a person's down? 
Now, let me say this, and I want everybody to be on the same page. I want to interject this. You may not be from that kind of background at all, and you're like, oh, no, what's happening? Listen, I am not by talking about this suggesting that this is going to happen. I am not trying to get people ready for it to happen. But I do think this. We are in a move of God that is very significant. As somebody who I respect highly, who this week texted me, he said, you know what? You've been getting a sprinkling from heaven. Get ready for a downpour. I've never used that word to him ever. And when he said it, my heart leapt because I've said that to you. Wednesday night, if you were here, you know Jesus was in the room. It was a very unusual service. He was here. I didn't know what would happen, but I'm telling you that his presence, the weight of his presence and the work of his presence is increasing. We've been praying for a great awakening. We've been praying for revival. What does that look like historically when that happens? I'm just saying that when you look at awakenings and you look at revivals, this is one of the phenomenon that happens. As so one of the things here that I, I do think is important to point out is that um, I would disagree with a lot of probably John's theology in regards to like charismatic Pentecostalism. There's just a lot of things that I would disagree with with him on those specifics. One of the things that I appreciate is his his teaching and kind of like I said, as he's going through here, one of the things that uh, I would cautious ca be cautious about and that I think we should look for, right? Because sometimes um, we get so caught up in like, hey, are they being contextual? Are they teaching you know church history that we can we can let that being done? influence our thinking and we kind of shut down our brains because like, oh, well, they're doing what we need them to do. So we don't have to worry about this being right or wrong. The only concern I have here with what John is doing is the same concern that I had when he references the angelic, like angels in Luke and Acts, where he uses the 25 mentions of angels in Luke and the 23 times that angels are mentioned in Acts to make sort of a causation equals correlation thing. He seems to sort of be doing the same thing here and referencing a pretty small time in history, right? I mean, he's referencing the first and second great awakening. He's mentioning the Azusa street revival, uh, which if you don't know, is a huge, like basically that's where charismatic Pentecostalism, as far as the modern version was sort of launched out of. And then he mentions a few other revivals as well that would be known within that movement. So he's using a pretty small amount of time, regulatively as far as the human history and these are specifically american uh revivals and saying hey this is what happens when revivals happen and using that as sort of a, a type case for if it happens this was what this is what it'll look like and then trying to tie scripture into that i would be just i would be cautious of that um again if you haven't studied the first and second great awakening though things came out of that that were good, there were some really damaging things that came out of that as well. Uh, things like the burned over districts where there were so many revivals and awakenings, there was some really screwed up theology that came out of that. Um, so you have to be cautious is all I'm saying. When you're inundated with a lot of information, it can seem like it's helpful. And I'm not saying what he's doing here isn't helpful because I think he's done a very good job of tempering what he's saying and notating it with, hey, just because this happened, I'm not saying this is definitely going to happen again. 
or I'm, he says, I'm not trying to prepare people for this. I'm just saying, and then stating facts. I, I highly appreciate that. And I think it's very helpful when pastors do that. I just also think that we have to be careful that when we hear pastors kind of present things the way that he's doing, that we are careful to be very diligent and discerning and saying, okay, the information you're giving me, let me take that back and kind of look at it. And this is where note-taking is very important, right? What John is doing, and I've noted this a number of times in this review, when he's, he's very deliberate about teaching th- through things and being very careful to break things down for his congregation, which is so needed. Like, hear that. Like, this needs to happen, this type of thing. We just have to be very careful and say, okay, what's he using as examples for if this happens again, it'll look like this. These examples are very specific and very recent. And I, I'm just saying, be careful. Uh, I would say the same thing, example, for example, if somebody were like, you know, if they're dispensationalists and be like, oh, this is definitely how the end times will happen. Dispensationalism is a very recent eschatological eschatological view. So you just have to keep that in mind. Just because it's new doesn't mean it's wrong. <laughs> but um, you you do have to keep in mind the examples and type cases that are being used to make sure they're not being used to make, to, to kind of lead you into a certain way of thinking when that may not be the case. Again, not saying John's doing this. I'm just saying, as we listen to sermons, this is what we need to look for because it'd be very easy to convince somebody of something using particular examples and letting out all, like leaving out all the other ones and then making it seem like, oh, this is normative. Okay. This is why note-taking is important. This is why using your brain's important. This is why being discerning is important. So that being said, let's hop back into the sermon as he kind of works through the rest of this. As Abraham is out, God speaks to him, the Lord said, and gives him an understanding of what's going to happen over the next 400 years. And then we read on and it says this, Abraham saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. So he's hearing from God. He's seeing things. And out of that, Abraham now fundamentally is different. He's convinced he's going to have an heir. That never changes in his mind. So this experience of being slain in the spirit or being in a trance is where you have the Lord speaking to you. And sometimes God wants to speak to us in a way that brings us into a new understanding of him. Sometimes he wants to do a work in us where he wants to extract out of us the things we've accumulated in life that have kept us become or become roadblocks in our following of him. And he does that best by overwhelming us with his presence so he can do spiritual surgery on us. That's, I think, a great way to understand that. Being slain in the spirit is biblical. And when you look at the history of revival, and we could go back, you could go back almost to the Middle Ages, but I'll just pick it up with the First Great Awakening. There are several examples from history. During the First Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards, and here's a little bit about Jonathan Edwards. He's a Puritan. He's a pastor. He, he preaches that famous sermon. So I'm not going to get in. I'm, not, I'm going to let him go through this. I'm going to try not to break in because, again, I want to make this sermon review concise and let John say what John's going to say. So I don't want to break in a ton here, and I'm not going to. What I want you to listen for, and I think this is where it's important to um, it demonstrates where, where John's really bringing in quite a bit of history here to teach his people. Um, the, the things he references here, I think, are very helpful. I don't think that um, 
as modern believers, you know, in the 21st century that we really even, uh, the Puritans are often looked at poorly. Like uh, we just don't read a lot of old people <laughs> from, uh, you know, times before. Um, John's bringing that in. And I think that's incredibly impor- important. And I think what he does here is helpful. So if you're a pastor, keep in mind like, oh, maybe this is, you know, this is, would be helpful to bring in, in a way. Cause I think how John presents this is, is a great balance to what he's done so far and kind of the point he's trying to make, whether you agree with it or not. I think the, the sermon build part is very helpful, um, to, to, to kind of see how he does that in a very balanced way. So that being said, he's going to go through quite a bit of history, uh, with the Puritans and the first, second great awakening to sort of make his point, And then we'll kind of break in here at the end. Uh, we got about, uh, roughly 10 minutes left in his sermon. Um, so I'm going to let him go for a pretty good amount of time. So just be prepared for that part. And then I'll break in. Um, he gets to a point here that I do want to talk about. So let's, let's let him go. Enters in the hands of an angry God. Before he preaches it, he practices preaching it in a monotone voice without any voice inflection because he's afraid if he modulates his voice, the people will be moved by emotion or by his voice rather than by God. As he preaches in a monotone, reading his sermon, the power of God comes down in that place and people are terrified they're going to fall into hell straight from the the church. They're grabbing onto the pews and crying out and it initiates this awakening where people, many people, are overcome by the Spirit for hours. His wife, Sarah, is one of them. On one occasion, she goes into a room where people were discussing the reviving work of the Holy Spirit and her strength was immediately taken away and she sank down on the spot. Those are his words. They, those present propped her up on a chair and again, her strength failed her. Jonathan Edwards called being slain in the spirit, their strength failed. Her strength failed her and she dropped to the floor. As she lay there, Mrs. Edwards herself later wrote these words. I contemplated the glories of the heavenly world and felt a far greater love for the children of God than ever before. I seemed to love them as my own soul. This was accompanied with a ravishing sense of the unspeakable joys of the upper world. Edwards criticized for the emotion that was happening and and honestly, in and of himself, not wanting anything that didn't produce fruit, was watching all these things happen. And he writes this paragraph as what he observed happened as a result of the encounters. Now, if these things are enthusiasm and be the fruits of a distempered brain, let my brain evermore be ever more possessed of that happy distemper. If this be distraction, I pray God that the world of mankind may all be seized with this benign, meek, beneficent, beautiful, glorious distraction. He said, I saw it do so much good. He said, I would love to have it happen. Critics called the first great awakening the great clamor because of the response of people, which Edwards recorded with the following terms. Extraordinary affections, Tears, trembling, groans, loud cries, agonies of the body, the failing of bodily strength, which would be being slain in the spirit, fits, jerks, and convulsions. You say, what's happening there? When the power of God hits somebody, it affects people differently. Some people do shake. Some people go silent and fall flat. And he is recording those things as having happened. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, so if you're Methodist, this is in your background as well, writes of the great evangelical revival that broke out in London of people being thrown to the ground, swooning, and being slain in the spirit. He's the first one to use that term. He writes this on Thursday, April 26th, in his journal, immediately one and another and another sunk to the earth. They dropped on every side as thunderstruck. 
He writes in his journal about a discussion that he had with George Whitfield. So George Whitfield was a reformed preacher. So if you're in the Presbyterian category, then this is also in your background. Saturday, July 7th, I had the opportunity to talk with him of those outward signs which had so often accompanied the inward work of God. I found his objections were chiefly grounded on gross misinterpretations of matter of fact. So Whitfield wasn't buying it. But the next day, he had an opportunity of informing himself better. For no sooner had he begun to invite all sinners to believe in Christ. So he's saying, I don't believe it. I don't believe it's real, etc." And as he starts to give the invitation for people to receive Christ, it says four persons sunk down close to him almost in the same moment. One of them lay without either sense or motion. A second trembled exceedingly. A third had strong convulsions all over his body, but made no noise unless by groans. And the fourth equally convulsed, called upon God with strong cries and tears. From this time, I trust, we shall all suffer God to carry on his own work in the way that pleaseth him. That's good advice. Let God do what he wants to do in a person's life and don't be the arbiter of the way God works or the way a person responds. George Whitfield later wrote that people were both healed and slain in the spirit in his meetings. He writes, and I trust the son of righteousness arose on some with healing in his wings and the people were melted down. That's the way he put it very much at the preaching of the word. At the Cane Ridge Revival, which would be a part of the Second Great Awakening, which the Baptists called the Awakening of 1800, so it involved a lot of Baptists, so if you're Baptist, this is in your background as well. Thousands of people were saved. One circuit rider preacher wrote this of the meeting, the noise was like the roar of Niagara. A vast sea of human beings seemed to be agitated as if by a storm. At one time, I saw at least 500 swept down in a moment. Keep in mind, 25,000 people were there at the meeting. 500 swept down in a moment as if a battery of a thousand guns had been opened up on them and then immediately followed by shrieks and shouts that rent the very heavens. So if you're Baptist, it's in your background. If you're Methodist, it's in your background. If you're Presbyterian, it's in your background. If you're Reformed and you're thinking in the way of the Puritan authors, it's in your background. I'm just simply trying to help you see that this is not a Pentecostal phenomenon. It's not a charismatic phenomenon. This is a historical phenomenon of what happens when the power of God falls on a place. I'm not predicting that happens here. At the same time, I think as we go through the book of Acts and we're looking what happens as the Spirit of God is working in a place, it's important for us to understand. So one thing that he's, he's going to end here is actually going to start ending. Um, I think that's the music that's actually coming at the background. We've had, it's been a long time since we've had a sermon where music comes up at the end of the service. One of the things that I do want to point out that I think that John did really well there at the end is demonstrating that um, there's a lot in the history of a variety of different denominations in which God works in really supernatural ways to bring people to himself. And um, he demonstrated, I mean, again, I, I'm going to say it was pretty deliberate that he pulled from three different sort of denominational backgrounds in which this occurred during the first and second great awakenings in order to demonstrate his point. I think he has preface and he prefaced again there that he's not saying this is going to happen. He's not declaring it's going to happen. He's being very, very careful through this whole sermon to say, Hey, this is a reality in scripture, but I'm not saying that this is going to happen here. So as to sort of, I don't know if he's purposefully tempering it back so he can't be called a false prophet or if he's just saying like, Hey, this is a reality, but I'm not saying that this is going to happen again right now. Like maybe he's just trying to temper his people's expectations a bit. So it's not a matter of like them, like getting falsely riled up in the same, in maybe in maybe a similar way 
as John Edwards was trying to make sure that anything that did happen in the, you know, when he preached was of God and not of him, which is why he didn't want emotionalism. If you read a lot of the Puritans, emotionalism is like terrible because they understood something that I don't think we understand very well is that it can be very manipulative and they didn't want fake converts and false manipulation to bring forth this false assurance in people. They wanted to make sure that when the word was preached, if there was actually something that happened, that was God and not them that did it. And sometimes they went to extremes, um, not great extremes to make, you know, to make sure that it wasn't them. Um, but that is what it is when you read the Puritans. So that being said, John is going to be ending the sermon here. Uh, and then we will get into sort of going over the totality of it and looking at the questions we asked. So let, let's let this him finish the sermon up here and then we will get into, uh, into that and to give context for it so that if it happens here or happens somewhere else you go you have some kind of sense for being able to process what's happening not not just say oh that's weird what's going on now you know hey this is in the bible and this is something that historically has happened one more account mariah woodworth edder who was a revivalist at the end of the 1800s and preached until about 1923 1924 had meetings, she had a tent that held uh, thousands of people, 8,000 people, at times had 25,000 people at her meetings. She writes this, and I mean, her accounts of this are multiple. This is just one account. The power of the Lord swept all over the city, up one street, down another, sweeping through places of business, to workshops, saloons, and dives, arresting all classes of sinner. Men, women, and children were struck down in the homes, their places of business, on the highways, and lay as dead. They had wonderful visions and rose converted, giving glory to God. So unsaved people were being slain in the spirit. When they told what they had seen, their faces shone like angels. The fear of God fell upon the city. The police said they never saw such a change, that they had nothing to do. They said they made no arrest and that the power of God seemed to preserve the city. A spirit of love rested over all the city. There was no fighting, no swearing on the streets. The people moved softly. And there seemed to be a spirit of love and kindness among all as if they were in the presence of God. One night, a sleigh load of men and women were going to the meeting. They were jesting about the trances. They made the remark to each other that they were going in a trance that night. Before the meeting closed, all who had been making fun were struck down by the power of God and lay like dead people and had to be taken home in that condition. <laughs> That's funny. Because <laughs> you know, if they're struck down with the power of God, you know they're gonna come out of it converted and, and the thing they were laughing about is the thing they experienced. All that to say this. Being slain in the spirit is a real experience that has been associated with moves of God throughout history. Peter was slain in the spirit. He had an ec ecstatic experience and it changed his life. You say, what did he see? What happened? Come back next week, I'll tell you. But the reason why I'm taking time to talk about this is because right now we're experiencing a supernatural visitation from God. We're praying for an awakening in Southwest Missouri. We're praying for revival. And I think it's important that our thinking is informed by the Bible and by church history so that we understand how God has worked in the past so that as God works, we're able to say, Lord, whatever you wanna do, that's what I want. I'm not saying this is what is gonna happen. I don't have any idea. I just know we're at the front, not the end. I just know there's an accumulating weight of grace. I just know that the healings, the testimonies, I'm telling you, I didn't read all I had on my iPad, and I didn't have all on my iPad that we got this week. I'm just, I'm telling you, what we're seeing is remarkable by anybody's, you know, evaluation. 
I just heard I'm waiting for the testimony of a second person healed of Alzheimer's. Listen, I don't, I don't know what, what God is going to do, but I know he's doing something. And if I can just simply from the Bible prepare you for whatever it is God wants to do, and you can be ready so that you're not afraid, you enter into it, and you embrace what God wants to do, and you come out of this more in love with God, then that's really what we want. But all of this is a part of the supernatural life of the believer. May the Lord have his way in this church and in every one of our lives. Amen. Okay, so um, that is very blue. That is incredibly blue. Let's turn that off. So um, one of the things uh, that we look at, well, we're going to look at, review the four things that we look at in the sermon. So the first thing we want to look at is, did he read the text? So he did. His main text was uh, Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. So he did go through that, um, taught pretty extensively through that, which answers our second question. Did he expound on the text using culture and context? Which he did. There was quite a few sort of side roads he took there uh, to get us there, but we uh, he did. He, he made sure to teach through sections. Now, I think some of them may have been selective, again, like the angel thing. Uh, but as he went through, he tried to break those down and teach through them and then give application based upon them. Now, one of the things that I think is in incredibly important to note here is that a lot of that application, a lot of that breakdown was done via the lens of his theological, um, his theological framing, which is Pentecostal charismatic. One of the things we need to recognize is that oftentimes, well, all the time, that is the case for the church you attend, right? So if it's a Baptist church, if it's, it leans more like Presbyterian or Reformed, the pastor that's preaching is going to um, exegete the text with at least a little bit of influence from your denominational background. That's not bad. That's you, you just need to recognize that. All right. Uh, I don't think anything uh, that John said overall contradicts with what you would have a pastor from any other denomination necessarily preach and exegete from that text. Um, there were specific things in particular that he's talking about as far as like uh, slain in the spirit or, um, you know, visions and things like that, that somebody is going to look at differently and maybe have a different perspective on. But nothing that he preached there, I think, as far as exegetically working through the text, it would be done in a different way. It may be explained in a different way, but it's going to be acknowledged and taught out of the text in the same way. Hopefully that's clear. The application he gives, I think, is very uh, was very well-tempered in regards to saying, this is what happened to the text. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen now. I'm simply pointing to the text and sort of uh, lining that up with the prayers that they've had for revival, that they want to see revival happen. Lastly, did he preach the gospel? That did not happen, and we need to be clear there. He did not mention uh, the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, the ascension, Jesus coming again, none of that. He was very heavy on the spirit and the spirit moving. Um, and specifically, again, with the angel thing and the trance and vision thing, that was the heavy emphasis that he had there. Now, we've been asked before, I get asked all the time, do you think there has to be a gospel presentation in every message? I think that that is incredibly helpful if you do put those there. Somebody that we, uh, actually one of the patrons, so just full disclosure there, um, but one of the sermons that I have reviewed before that I think demonstrates this very well 
is Matt Fries. I think that I say, I think I'm saying his last name, right? Um, but he, uh, there's a sermon review on this channel of one of his sermons and talking to Matt. And if you watch Matt's sermons at the very end, he works in a gospel presentation at the end, every single time. And he does a very good job of it. It does not seem forced. It does not seem like, oh, I just have to throw this on the end. It is a plea for people to come to know Jesus. And it, it ties back always to what he's preaching on. So um, I'd say that, that is, he does a really good job of being the example of like, oh, this is what it means to make sure you preach the gospel every sermon. So even though it may not be uh, within the text you're preaching on, you can always connect it to the gospel. And he always does that really well. So uh, John here does read the text. I think he does a really good job of teaching through the text contextually and exegetically. I would disagree a little bit maybe with his application, but I think he tempers it well but he doesn't preach the gospel in it at all. I think probably because he's assuming those that are there know Jesus, but there's got to be probably some people in there that don't. So the gospel presentation there, I think is why it's always important to include that. Overall, I think this sermon is a good example of what it means to care about your people knowing what they know and why they know that. John goes to great length to ensure that he teaches them uh, what particular words mean, where those things are demonstrated in scripture, and really brings out history uh, within the church to demonstrate that. Though, and I just want to say this one more time, though I, I would have vast differences with theological, like secondary theological issues with John, I think that he does a really good job of making sure that no matter who he's talking to, they benefit from the, the scripture he's preaching from, that they are encouraged by the word of the Lord, and that they go away at least thinking about what has been said and can grow in it. And, I, and that is important. Oftentimes, you're going to have people either from the charismatic Pentecostal movement or other denominations that are so dead set on you believing exactly how they believe on secondary issues that if you listen to them, you miss a lot of what's being taught because you're so defensive about it. And while I think you do always have to come with like the mind of Berean, right? Always coming and saying, okay, is what you're saying lining up against scripture and definitely taking notes on it. I think John presents it in a way that he encourages you to take notes. He encourages you to push back, but he presents the information and puts it in your court to do so. And I think that is a great, just from a pastoral standpoint, I think that's a great way to do it. And the sermon building here was phenomenal um, as far as like working through it, going around, bringing you back to the sermon, working through it, bringing you back to the sermon. Excellent job there. So I'd be interested to know what you guys think about it. Um, uh, below, if you're charismatic Pentecostal, do you think, I mean, is this the type of preaching that you normally hear? Do you think that, you know, Pentecostals normally get the bad rap because of the crazy ones? Uh, or is this not common? Secondly, if you're not within that denominational movement, right? Like myself, I'm not charismatic or Pentecostal. Um, do you, did you benefit from what the type of preaching that John did here? Um, what are the issues you had with it? What are the things you think were really beneficial? I, I think one of the wonderful things about this sort of way of doing sermon reviews, this platform that we have is that we're able to learn from each other a little bit and say, Hey, I really appreciated that. Even though I disagree with you, uh, and being able to take that back and say, I need to look for that more in my sermons. Or if I'm a pastor, hey, maybe I need to integrate that a little bit more myself as well. So if you appreciated uh, this, if you found value in this, if you found this helpful, make sure you like it, make sure you share it, make sure you interact in the comment section below. All of those things, I think, uh, are, are uh, 
not only beneficial, obviously, to this page, but hopefully uh, they're beneficial to others that watch this as well. Guys, I'll talk to you next week. See you later.